Welcome to episode five with Jeff Reynolds. Jeff likes to build things. His work has been featured by the New York Times, Good Morning America, and Fast Company, among others. Jeff graduated from the winter class in 2013 from Y Combinator, which is one of the world's most prestigious technology incubators. But most of all, Jeff is a globetrotter, and he's been all over the world, and he's done it all for cheap through travel hacking. This guy is brilliant when it comes to saving money and traveling, and he is here today to teach us all how to be a little bit more like him. My brother Jeff, welcome to the show. Good to see you, brother. Big Papa Jeff. <laughs> welcome, man. How are you? Uh, fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, why don't you let our audience know uh, a little bit about yourself? Give us a little background. A little bit about myself. Well, I'm, um, let's see, I've been married to the, my high school sweetheart for 20-some years, 21 years. I have a couple kids, and that's my number one focus, of course, in my life. And other than that, I make money by consulting and running a small portfolio of consult, uh, software companies, doing a little, you know, investing in some other things here and there. And then uh, mostly I don't have any hobbies except I like to go places. So spend most of my money on uh, on traveling, basically. I love it. Yeah. You take photos, too. I take some photos. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I take some photos. I, I think of photography as just an extension of traveling. Though. It's like, for me, I, a traveler who photographs, not a photographer who travels. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're one of the most well-traveled people I know. <laughs> I might even call you an addict to some extent, <laughs> yeah. which is awesome uh, because I don't, you just really love enjoying life. And so with that said, when did that craze, like when did you get that, that inner love for traveling? Like when did that start? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think by my earliest co- college days, maybe in high school, I mean, by in high school, I grew up in Portland, Oregon and uh, you know, it, there's, I fell in love with the beach really young. And so it probably started there. Like we would take day trips. My whole life was around how could I ditch school without either getting caught or at least not getting in trouble and go surfing for the day. And, you know, so it was a two hour drive. And um, uh, so we started camping out and, and traveling up and down the Oregon coast, which is not the world's greatest place to learn how to surf. And then of course you want to escape that. So then we would do quick weekend trips to Santa Cruz and then, then we'd be suddenly it's a four day trip and we're going to Oceanside, like literally, you know, 2000 miles away. And so that really gave me the bug. And then, you know, by the time I was in college and wandering around trying to figure out when, what I wanted to do with my life, I was, uh, you know, trying to travel as part of that. So I went to Mexico, um, slept on the beach. You know, we were broke. We just drove down there in a pickup truck, surfboards in the back. And with no idea what we were doing, no place to stay. So, and we camped and slept on the beach. You know, we'd slept on the side of the highway all the way down, down the 101, um, and then the beach. And then at one point in college, I dropped out. Well, I didn't call it dropping out, I called it taking a break. My dad called it dropping out. (laughs) And I was, we bought a, me and my buddy bought a Volkswagen bus. And of course, you know, this was in the nineties. So this was before hashtag van life. You know what I mean? Yep. We were the real van life, the first van life. And the idea was, uh, we were going to just drive, just drive cross country. And, uh, basically we made it to park city, Utah, and then the bus broke down and, uh, we worked on it for several weeks and kept breaking down, breaking down. So eventually we hobbled back on three cylinders. And so, uh, that was the end of that little adventure. My buddy took the bus, eventually moved to Alaska, and I finished college and waited till I had some money to travel again. Nice. So you've kind of always been, uh, you've always had the wanderlust. Yeah, man. I and, love I, and particularly, I like the dirt bag of wanderlust, you know, just yeah. on the cheap. Yeah. And even now, you still keep it oh, that way. Totally. Stay true to your roots. As much as possible. Yeah. Jeff Reynolds, keeping it real. Keeping it real. I just like it better. So, I mean, like, we'll stay in, uh, you know, the fancy resorts occasionally because my wife likes it, but um, only with free nights and everything else. It's Airbnb or camping or something. What is it that you like about the dirtbag life? Uh, it's real. Um, uh, it just, I'd say it's more that I dislike the other life where every, there's like a barrier between you and like the employees because they're there to serve you. And that's always really weird for me. Um, and in my version, it's just not about that. It's just more about the place and you can go be in places, you know? So like people who go on cruise ships, I'm not dogging on anybody cause 
you know, if you dig cruise ships and that's your thing, that's cool. I, I that's cool. I have no problem with that. But if you go on cruise ship, you know, cruise around the Caribbean and then tell me that you've been to all these islands, I don't say this, but in my head, I'm going, no, you have not been to the islands because you, you know, you've, I've been to the islands when there's cruise ships aren't important when they're in important. And of course it's two different experiences. So, so all I'm saying is for me, the dirtback life is just simplicity. Right. And uh, yeah, just keeping it real. Takes the people out of the equation. Yeah. Right. The, right. It's really hard. It makes it harder to get to know people and that sort of thing for sure. So uh, what is it that you love about traveling? Well, you mentioned it's sort of like an addiction for me. And I think that addiction specifically is new cultures. It's being somewhere different um, and sort of that rush that you get in your senses of that. And so it becomes like an addiction in the sense that you need a bigger, it's harder to get a fix or at least I like a certain kind of fix. The example that I think of when I think of that is like the first time I went to Paris I just remember, oh my gosh, it felt so foreign, just so like crazy, you know, and, you know, beautiful and the sounds. I felt like I got out of that cab and I could smell and see everything and everything was very vivid and it was awesome. I lost my wallet, but the cab driver returned it, thank goodness, with 1200 bucks in it. That's another story. But that was my first visit. And now I go back and it's more like visiting New York. You know, it's like different than my small city that I live in, you know, small town I live in, but it's not. It's not that different. And so I so I still love Paris, but it doesn't give me that same rush. So now Paris becomes a jumping off point to feed that addiction of how do I get into more French culture or other places, you know, wherever that is. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you, what you love about traveling is immersing yourself into the new cultures. What do you take away from that? When you come back, you know, home, what takeaways do you bring back from spending time in these, these new cultures? Yeah. Well, it's the paradox that we're how as humans, how alike and how different we are. And like, there's that paradox, like we're, we're, we're different on the surface and we value different, you know, we have different size, different size stoves in our apartments, but fundamentally people are people. And, uh, you know, I think that sort of living in that paradox is really interesting to me that like, how do you, you know, how do these people, you know, how does somebody who grew up in the deep south of the U.S. different than somebody who grew up in a, on a dirt floor in Cambodia? You know, like that's really interesting how they different and how are they the same? So that's what I, I think I take away. And for me, it's just also a shades of gray. I think when I was younger, I was pretty much a know-it-all and or at least thought I had it figured out. And my wife would tell you that I still am a little bit that way. But I think, you know traveling and experiencing cultures lets you live in the shades of gray of, of life a little better. So I, like, I love that. Nice. Okay. So when you travel to one of these new countries, most people, when they go on, you know, the common vacation, it's the uppity side of, of traveling. Like, you know, we kind of talked about earlier and you're staying in hotels and you're getting room service, watching movies, going to the beach, hanging out at the resort pool. And, uh, and that's, that's very common and very normal. So for you, traveling as a dirtbag, how do you go about immersing yourself in a new culture when you get to a foreign country? Well, my first thing is I think it really starts with spending at least some of your time visiting non-touristy places, like picking where you pick your location, right? Because if you're visiting Paris, just since I used that example earlier, you know, there is nowhere you can go in Paris where they're not used to dealing with tourists, And so you're going to get to a degree, a whitewashed tourist experience. They're going to come at you with their own presumptions about you. You know what I mean? And so I think it starts with at least spend some time off the beaten path. So a great example for me is um, St. Lucia in the Caribbean. I love the Caribbean. And um, I'm I'm hesitant, you know, but to give away my favorite places. But I'll give this favorite place because this is because of the group that listens to to this and follows you guys, you know. But like St. Lucia is one of my favorite places in the Caribbean. But the north half is all like these resorts, sandals and beaches and cruise ships. Well, the southern half, half, especially this little town called Labrie, it's a little village, is really special. It's really unique. And they're just starting to get tourism there really at all um, in any meaningful way. When I went there the first time it was like you know 
one Airbnb that you could rent. Actually, this guy had two Airbnbs, but um, that's all. Now there's, last time I looked, there's four or five, so, you know. And uh, so you I, I, you pick a place like Labrie versus going up up north and and into the tourist places and staying at the beaches. That's the first step. The second step is to find where people like actually live. So like, are you going to the markets? Are you going to the restaurants? Are you, you know, that's where you get your tips. You don't get your trip tips from TripAdvisor or whatever. That's fine. Like to do a little bit of that to be smart. But what you really do is you have conversations with uh, folks as they're just living their lives. And then if you're using like an Airbnb, which is really all I use, I mean, I don't even really use VRBO that much or any of those other ones a little bit. Uh, I just like the culture of Airbnb, you know, those, uh, a great host can give you amazing, amazing, amazing tips. I was just in San Sebastian, the Basque country of Spain, and our host sat down with us. It spent an hour with us, giving us all the places to eat their pinchos, which are like Basque tapas. And he had his rest, you know, list. And we had a discussion of the list was like 30 and we got it down to his top 10, you know. So I, I think that's a big part of it, you know, is just living in the real world. I always, always, always go grocery shopping when I'm traveling, go like early on, go just to the local market or, you know, depending on where you're at, just a grocery store because that's ton of, tons of fun. And just try to buy as close as you can to what people actually eat. We don't really go out to eat. I mean, we go out to eat for maybe a quarter of our meals or maybe, I don't know, maybe we're up to a half of our meals sometimes. But I love just to, you know, go to the, try to find a farmer's market or something or whatever they have or buy, buy the fruit in the Caribbean or the tropics. You can buy the fruit from a lady standing out front of the, front of the grocery store, you know? So <laughs> is that answer the question yeah no absolutely <laughs> and that and that's cool because i imagine any market in any foreign country is probably an awesome experience well can i just tell you that library story yeah we showed up the first day was happened to be market day and we didn't have any money yet and the bank we went to the bank to get money because he's east caribbean dollar and it was like an hour and a half long long line which is not uncommon in a lot of parts of the world right so i was like oh, i don't know let's just uh just go wander around see if they'll take some american money so we go from shops or go around to these little tables. We buy a couple things. I, my daughter, I think fell in love with this little piece of like a cocoa. It's like a, I don't know. They form the cocoa plant um, into like a, like a little, I don't even know, like a cylinder. And it's for cocoa tea. So we had this whole conversation. They make cocoa tea and um, we're talking with this guy. And, it, and, I, and I said, oh, well, maybe we'll, we'll just buy it. So I reached into my pocket, and all I had was a dollar, which he would have taken, but it was $2. And he explained to me, oh, this wasn't his table. In fact, he was manning this table for a friend of his who had, had stepped away to do something. So he would give it to me otherwise at that price, but he didn't want to, you know, like disrespect his friend who had it marked at whatever price, like $2. So then he reaches into his pocket and pulls out enough Eastern Caribbean money places it on top of my dollar and then hands me the, the cocoa thing and so he bought half of my cocoa thing so my kid could have it which was really cool the kicker is later that week we we're eating at the big bamboo uh which is a little restaurant locals restaurant in town and uh i run into the guy and i'm able to buy him a round of beers so that was really a ton of fun that is cool wow <laughs> that's neat and see and you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't have that experience if you weren't dirtbagging. Yeah, and just talking. Yeah. Friendly, be friendly. It sounds so... Human. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of times, if you know, if you are in an all-inclusive resort, you get into the mode of you're there to give orders. And I just think that does not translate out well to the real world. <laughs> you said something about you didn't have any money yet. Just for those people that have never gone outside of the country, we can keep it brief, but... How do you go about that? So when you're gonna take a trip to yeah. Thailand for your first time, yeah. What what do you do? Do well, you, you take do you bring cash and exchange it once you get here? Do you show up with your debit card? Like yeah. what do you do? So okay, so that's a really good point. Um, it's a lot easier than it used to be. And my first trips, I always used to convert cash in the U.S. So I'd go to a bank or sometimes travel agencies. Well, you know, you can give them some money. It's U.S. money and say, I want francs or whatever. I guess it's euros. <laughs> now they don't know such thing as francs anymore. You know, whatever, the Thai dollar or whatever. And they charge you a fee. Well, those fees are pretty expensive and whatever. And you can do that. And it's probably good to have, have access to some money. But nowadays, you can, in most airports, you can find an ATM. And I usually research it. And your ATM will just spit out local money. Now, pro tip here. 
never, when they ask you anywhere to convert it, do you want it converted in U.S. or do you want it in local currency? They ask you how you want the conversion, right? Because different monetary systems are at different values. Always do it in the local currency. All that, all that uh, local, if you do it in the U.S. dollar, all it does is make it do a double transaction. The bank charges you extra fees. There's no point in it. So always, so if you're running, if they're running your credit card, uh, like I said, I was just in Spain all the time. They'd run your credit card and say, oh, do you want me to convert that in U.S. or in Euro? Um, it turns out you pay about 8% more, 6 to 8% more if you are doing it uh, in the conversion, if you're doing it in the U.S. versus do, just doing it in the Euro. So that's a good tip. The other thing is I choose my bank. The truth is I have a bank that doesn't have ATMs, their own ATMs. But what they do because they don't have their own ATMs is they let you, it's Northwest Bank, uh, and what they let you do, they only have three branches, right? But what they let you do is use any ATM in the world for free. So I don't get charged any fees. So that way, so typically what I do is I get off the uh, plane, find the ATM, I research it to make sure I can, there's a good chance there's going to be one. And I get, get a little cash, a couple hundred bucks, a few hundred bucks, depending on how, how long I'm staying, what the plan is. And then I sort of get it as we need it usually because I don't like to carry a lot of cash. And then the other thing is you can use credit cards. And, you know, if if you're in big cities, you, you need an Uber or whatever, you, you, you have, your Uber account works and your Lyft account works, and you can always use that to get around. You know what I mean? Cool. So credit cards are still are super powerful. Gotcha. Okay, so it's pretty, it's pretty simple. It's a lot easier than it used to be. Gotcha. And a debit card should work just the same as a, for those that don't have credit cards. Yeah. If, uh, yeah. Certainly at airports, if you're flying into a bigger international airport, you know, usually if I'm going to smaller airports, I get cash at the big airport, that sort of thing. And I'll also just say that I think it is good to have cash. Like if you're trying to go around the world or travel just generally with just credit cards that can, there's a lot, a lot of the world still is a cash economy in Cambodia. Uh, they actually rejected my money, my cash, my U.S. money. I had to pay a fee when you like for my visa in U.S. money. And they wouldn't take it because it was too wrinkly. So I had to get money out of an ATM that they keep there because they literally keep their um, cash crisp. And like we would negotiate. So then like the rest of that trip, I'm trying to get rid of my cash, right? The vendors, like I'm talking like street hawkers would argue or like try to negotiate. Say, hey, do you have a better dollar? Because they reuse it over and over again. They want it to last. And like in that culture, the idea of a clean money is more likely to be real money versus a fake us and, and and where we were in cambodia they took both the cambodian money and the u.s money equally okay well that's some amazing advice and great pro tip because that's confusing it is like confusing. naturally you'd probably want to be like oh yeah convert it to us right that, and, and that's what they're banking on right like, i mean and i actually researched it on my last because i even knew that and then i still i hadn't run into it for a while so when i got back to the apartment one night, I was like, I'm Googling that to make sure I'm right. And I was, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, so Jeff has a family of four. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And which is really cool because uh, one of our prior guests was a solo traveler. So now we get to talk about uh, whether you're traveling with the family yeah. or traveling with the group of friends, you know, how to hack that, what that cost would, would be mm -hmm. and et cetera. So let's jump into some of that. So with your family and as often as you guys travel, how many times a year, how many trips are you guys taking on average? And what does that cost you on average for yeah. a year of travel? Well, I mean, if I was to guess, and I've never done the math on a year of travel, I mean, we're up to about four international trips a year. The kids might not go on all of those. They might go on three, two or three of those. Um, my wife and I might go by ourselves. Our, my kids are 13 and 16 now, so they're old enough sort of to stay home or connect with grandparents or whatever, right? So, well, and I would say I can do, well, I'd say even that I can usually, I, I would guess I spend 10, 12 grand a year on travel, even for four of us. You know, I figure my average trip is a $3,000-ish trip for a family of four, but I'm not paying for airfare. Very rarely am I paying for airfare unless it's cheap. I'm using air miles usually. I'm staying in Airbnbs. I target a hundred bucks a night. And what's weird about even talking about budgets is so often, you know, most of my trips traditionally have been longer. I, I mean, I try to do a couple week trips, but it's they're incre now they're shortening as my kids are actually getting older because like my teenager has a job and a girlfriend and he doesn't want to be gone. And I don't want to be with a ticked off uh, teenager. So, so what else? I mean, so, and then we budget, you know, I generally try to budget a hundred dollars a day for food for the whole family, which usually means eating out once or something and, and family and then 
eating in. Sometimes we go more, you know, it just depends. I'm way less budget conscious than I used to be, but I like the constraints. I, I think it, I like the fun of that. I like the puzzle of that. Okay. So you're known as, as you know, being a great travel hacker and, and doing some cool things with that and your family. What is travel hacking for the audience that's listening? They're like, what is like, what are they talking about? What is travel hacking? Yeah. Travel hacking is using elements of the system, whatever that we mean by that. Um, you know, in this case, it's usually like air miles or free nights and, um, you know, purchase, get, you know, buying, booking 10 hotels and getting one free, whatever it is to get stuff free or cheap. So um, the, the real classic is air miles. And, you know, five years ago was like the, we were like in the middle of the golden age of travel hacking where it's so easy to get points and miles through credit card signups. And that's really how most points are gathered. They're not by traveling. They're actually by just credit card signups, which I guess since I mentioned credit cards, I should just say, like, if you suck at credit cards, then you they don't do credit cards because you can't like there's not enough there's not enough big enough shovel or big enough, tall enough ladder to get you out of the hole that you can get into with credit cards you know does that make sense so you have to be smart about credit card use but most people get they basically sign up for credit cards get the bonus so they usually require a minimum spend of a couple thousand or five thousand depending for a business card or something and you get a bunch of points and then you uh, use that card and then eventually you either cancel it or call and ask for an extension before you have to pay a fee like that's the way I do it. Some people pay the, some of the fees because the cards are worth it. And then you use those points and miles to get free, free travel stuff. So that's the heart of it. I think it, you know, it, there's lots of different sort of shades of travel hacking. Um, but mostly people use credit cards, get the bonus miles. And then equally important to getting them is being smart about understanding the system enough to, to redeem them. Because most people, the complaint I always, like normal people say to me is like, oh, I tried that. It's just too hard. I can never get the flights. And the truth is, it's not easy. Not as good as it used to be. You might have to take a shitty flight and you might have to, you know, find a hotel for one night in Dallas to get to Honduras or something. But it, but the overall reward is worth it. I think there, I think it's worth it. So an example would be for a family of four. Uh, let's see, on my Spain. So I went to Spain from Boise, Idaho, right? And we, it cost me 400 some dollars, $480 or something like that in fees to get four of us round trip uh, to Spain, which would have been, those probably would have been, even if I was shopping, maybe a $700 ticket. So seven times four is 2,800 minus 400. I saved a couple grand off that. Sometimes I do, sometimes I do better than that. Sometimes worse than that. And so I think it's worth it. But more importantly for me, it's sort of this, it's like a life philosophy. It's like, it's good to, you know, like to adapt to your, your hedonistic adaptation. Like, how do you keep yourself? How do you remember that, you know, you're alive? And part of that is like putting yourself in uncomfortable conditions. And so I actually think it's a double bonus. There's definitely been times that my family has disagreed with that philosophy when we're sleeping on the floor in the Boston airport or something. But for me, it's saving money as part of it. The other part of it is, is like the puzzle. And the last part of it is like, hey, man, feel the pain, feel the constraints. It makes you feel more alive. Absolutely. And I think roughing it out is nice, too, because it, it gives you that grit. If you don't have the grit, it helps you learn and, and get a little of that grit. And if yeah. you do have the grit, then it keeps you on your toes. Like, Because a lot of times, you know, someone like yourself, you know, you become successful and, and life's good. And realistically, yeah, you could go do the luxury vacations, but you like to keep that edge and it keeps you who you are. It keeps you like, you don't forget your roots. Like this is who I am as a person. Like I'm not an uppity wealthy guy. That's right. Like, and I, it, it, to be real honest, like if you really got into that, you know, I was raised a poor kid. I was a poor kid growing up, you know, welfare kid. And I think, you know, I sometimes think like, Oh my gosh, if my mo mom knew I was staying at a $500 a night hotel, like what would my mom think? I'm embarrassed by it. And I, so, I mean, I'm sure there's like some childhood issues there, you know, but like for me, it, it just feels like the right thing to do. Like I feel good when I am frugal. It doesn't, when I feel bad. One time we got upgraded at one of these, we had like two free nights in Mexico. 
at this resort and we show up and I'm paying the driver and my wife goes to check in and the, the lady's like, uh, you know, at the receptionist, uh, just like, oh, I'm sorry. We're all, I hate to tell you this. We're like all full. And my wife, like her blood comes out of her face, you know, she's like, oh no, They're, are they going to move hotels? Cause this was like a pretty fancy hotel. And I thought I stayed in a, you know, $300 a night room or something. She goes, well, we, the only room we have left is a bungalow, a uh, beachfront bungalow with a private pool and a waiter or a butler, not a waiter, a butler. So they upgraded us to this $1,600 a night villa. It's like 2,000 square foot villa with a rooftop pool and a butler. And like, hey, the experience of that is pretty cool. You know, you walk in, you're like, oh, you got the beach on this side. I got the jungle on this side. This is cool. You know, a couple rooms, a couple bathrooms. It's just the two of us rooftop pool. Uh, but like I had to Google, what do you do with a butler? Cause I had no idea. And the whole, whole time I it actually made me pretty uncomfortable. So like, it's like cool to have that first experience. And then after that, it's like, Oh, can I just get back to where I feel at home, which is dirtbagging. <laughs> Lots of ways to travel hack, but credit cards are the most efficient way to save in terms of saving money and probably ROI on it's the simply, hacking. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's a, simply the fastest way to earn points. And we're, to be just totally honest, we're, it's not as good as it used to be. It was really good five years ago. And you could get the same cards over and over again and things like that. And they've really clamped down on a lot of those rules. So it's tougher, but I think it's still worth it. Okay. So with that said, what's your favorite card or what's the most popular card right now or cards for travel hacking? Yeah. Well, if I am a beginner... And this is like my first card. I think the Chase Sapphire is really good. The Chase Sapphire Preferred. I'm looking right now. It has a, you know, you sign up. There's no fee for the first year. And basically you spend a couple grand and you get 50,000 points. And those points on that particular card can be used through their own Chase's portal. Or they can be transferred to other partners, including United, which is how I usually use Chase points. So I really like the Chase um, Sapphire card. Uh, the preferred, which is like the one that has a fee and gets you better points, or you can get the one without a fee, but you can always downgrade to that one uh, if you choose to. Um, the chase cards generally, I think right now are really good. If you are flying in the U.S., the Southwest card is really good. And they even have a thing, which I've never gotten because it's never been part of my strategy. But you, it, it basically, if like you and a spouse, since we're talking families, because you have to be related, I think, uh, are like, if you... to can if you each get the card you can each get 60,000 points and you can one person can roll the other person's points into the other one and once you hit a certain threshold I think it's 110 you get a companion pass for free and so then the your companion can fly anywhere with a paid person anywhere in the country so it's buy one get one free for like a year and even that there's some interesting timing on that because it's like calendar year so um, if you get it at the beginning of the year or it's like for the year that you you get it and the year after or something, I shouldn't talk about rules. I don't know. But the bottom line is that for people traveling the U S that Southwest card is great. Um, and then I like the city advantage, uh, MasterCard. Uh, it's uh, for, uh, American airlines and it gives you I, a lot of points. And I think American airlines flight chart, certainly for me and where I like to go on regular basis, which is tropical places. Um, I love, I love island communities. It's great. American Airlines flies everywhere in the Caribbean. Um, so those three, I just think, are all are like where I would start. And then what happens is you sort of have to start getting strategic as you apply for more. And you end up with this big pile of credit cards. And you have to learn how to deal with that, like how to track that. You know, Chase has rules now that you can only apply for so many cards a year. So you need to research that. And so you get some with Chase, you get a certain amount of weight with City, and then a certain sometimes you go, oh, now I can get these hotel points and that sort of thing. So it all depends. You need to get smart. Like, it's not enough. It's fine to get started. I got started with an Alaska Airlines card and my first trip to Paris. It took me a lot of years because I didn't understand the system then to earn enough points. But I, my first trip to Paris was on Alaska, Alaska's credit card. And then um, after that, I was like, oh, I'm going to figure this out. And I figured it out. And so just to keep talking is the blog, you know, blogs are like really the place, right? So the points guy and million mile secrets are the two great ones uh, for kind of as you roll in and both have um, sections for new, for people just getting started. Okay. So those are two blogs that yeah. you recommend yeah. people that want to get into travel hacking to check out. And what were those two again? Yeah, sure. The points guy, 
pointsguy.com. I think the pointsguy.com, maybe it's pointsguy.com. And then um, Million Mile Secrets. So those guys both do a great job of not only giving all the news and updates, but having some friendly content for people just getting started and trying to learn and understand it. Okay, cool. So we, we've now gone through the credit cards. Mm-hmm. What are some other uh, great ways to find budget-friendly flights? Yeah, so you don't have to like always use points. I've had so many points for so many years. I've just now started buying airline flights. I just bought my... I bought some tickets to Puerto Rico. Um, I went to Puerto Rico some this spring or winter or something, and that was the first flight I'd bought in several years. And then I just found tickets to Amsterdam for next spring break uh, that I also bought. And so, okay, the way you shop for flights is you need to understand the flight dynamics, the dynamics of flight pricing. And the way you do that really is to just follow along with flight pricing. That's the first step. So I use, you know, uh, services like airfare watchdog and some of these like cheap flights and some of these services were, or Hipmunk where you can set alerts on, I want to go from Salt Lake city to Roatan and you can set an alert. It'll send you updates on if the price is going up or down. So the first thing is to like follow all these people on, you know, whether it's IG or Twitter, whatever your thing is or email or whatever. So you know what's going on. So you get a sense of when flight prices are changing and just getting alerts on cheap fares. That's the first step. As you do that, you'll start to see trends and you'll start to see trends both from your city, like seasonality. Flights are cheaper, it turns out, certain times a year, um, you know, or certain days of the, the month. Not so much every month, but like, oh, if I buy a flight on December uh, 28th, it's a heck of a lot cheaper than December 30th. And for whatever reason, I mean, from certain locations, those sorts of things happen. So you'll start to understand those dynamics. And then the real secret to all that is just, you know, keeping your powder dry, being a little bit flush so you can have the cash to jump on the deals when they come. Because when a good deal, you know, when an airline like a Wow or whatever does a a cheap fare to Iceland, you got to have the the coin to get it done. And if that, if you don't, it doesn't do you any good. So that's like the idea of trying to find those, the fares that sort of the deals, because the dynamic that's driving that is airlines are figuring out how to segment their customers. They're figuring out that basically business travelers buy a certain way, vacation travelers buy a certain way and travel hackers or frugal people or price sensitive people buy tickets another way. And they're starting to price their product that way. So in other words, they'll offer so many tickets pick a fare to Hawaii. Like I know from Portland, a fare from Portland to Maui may typically cost 700 bucks. And like, that's almost always going to be 700 bucks. You can find that fare, 700 bucks. And, um, who they're trying to buy is sell to is like my aunt and uncle who don't aren't price sensitive. They don't care. They're just going to go shop. They're going to shop, but only for like that day that they happen to be shopping, find the best deal and buy it. But then I would never buy that fare. There's no way I'm paying 700 bucks to go to Maui. So what they'll do is they'll run little specials or sales, like flash sales with limited tickets to try to attract people like me. So I have my target price used to be 300 bucks for that trip. Now I'm up to about 375. I'll pay. And I wait from following everything. I know that I can I can get that fare. So I'll wait till it's that price and then I'll buy it. So does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, if you want to search for your own fares, you can use services like uh, Skyscanner, which lets you search from an airport to everywhere, which is really cool. So you can put in Chicago to everywhere and it'll give you a bunch of fares to all over the world. And, uh, and you can just jump on a deal or, you know, something that feels good. That's if you sort of just have the wanderlust and you need to get out of Dodge, you don't really care where. Do you feel that, uh, people who are able to work remotely or location independently are at an advantage for travel hacking? Oh, heck yeah. Like I think having flexibility in how you earn your living and how you survive is like key to really taking advantage of this. I mean... Obviously, if you just don't have much vacation time, it's just tough. I mean, if you got two weeks off, you know, just even that is tough, um, you know, limits your, then you're limited to weekend trips. So like, that's an example though. If you're in that situation, you might want to get into like the Southwest card because you're going to be taking trips in the U.S. and might as well do it that way. You know what I mean? So whereas if you want to do a lot of international trips, what I really recommend is that you, 
if, I mean, if this is really core to who you are, you have to build your life around travel, not the other way around, you know, and, and that is a hard mental thing to get around. Um, but you know, I certainly did that. I mean, I, I'm my own boss now. Um, at times I've definitely thought about, cause there's exciting opportunities within organizations, different companies, right? I've been offered some different roles, but when I suggest the idea of, yeah, I would like basically to work eight months a year, you know, it's really hard for most organizations to adapt to that. So when that became very clear for me, it was clear I had to become, be self-employed and basically some, my version of location independent or location flexible, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I just figured that would help a ton. That way, if there's a deal, you can pounce on it where most people don't really have that opportunity. It's like, oh, I only have two weeks in August every year. So yeah, and, the and, deal's in November. If it's a week, three days after, then I'm just kind of SOL. And that's a great example. Like, listen, you know, if you're travel, if you're trying to get travel hack and you are set that you have to do it during these two weeks in July, then the chances of that happen, like everything has to align to make that happen. And that's very unlikely. So flexibility is just super key to the whole thing. Like you have to, you have to be flexible. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about flights. What about, uh, what about places to stay? You know, how do you, yeah. how do you go about hacking living situations on the road or? Yeah. So that's an example of where I draw the line. Like I don't do shared rooms or hostels even really anymore. Occasionally I've done hostels, but with a family of four, the math and the complexity just doesn't work. So I now 42, I'm 42 years old. <laughs> it's weird to say that, you know, I now basically always try to rent a house or an apartment and I use Airbnb. The real secret there is usually planning ahead. I like to book my trips a long ways in advance. I should say that that's not everybody's style. A friend of mine, Steve Smith told me once that if you plan as far out in advance. Steve's a photographer and he's shot for people and does um, a lot of, now he shoots for blended images and some other stuff. People Magazine, that is. He he told me if you plan a year in advance, then you get to go on vacation all year round, you know, for the whole year leading up to the trip. And I thought, gosh, that's a really interesting idea. So that's what I do now. So I mostly try to plan my trips almost a year, as far out as I can, 330 days, 300 days in advance. So, yeah, so... That's really back to that flexibility thing, and it's back to helping having you get the good deals on things like housing because you all those cheap Airbnbs are gone usually if you're last minute. So I I do you know I always set a target of a hundred bucks a night for me and my family of four, twenty five bucks a person, which seems pretty reasonable um, or less. And so I shop Airbnb really really hard and really thoroughly. And then if I can't, then I hit the VRBOs and the HomeAways. And all those services, I mean, I'm, I, I guess I'm just a, a step past, like, I'm not using Craigslist and that stuff anymore. You know what I mean? And I don't really even camp anymore. I love camping and, and doing that. But for us in the international stuff, it's just the logistics are too complicated. Right. So for a group of, let's just say four grammars, you know, friends deciding they're going to go, some options they may have would probably be camping, you know, splitting a room yep. and just sharing it and flooring it. Yep. Hotels usually, I know you can just pay like a a per person if they can. It's if they ask. Nobody asks. You don't offer it. They don't ask. Whatever. And I guess my thing is, yeah, you can always rent something smaller than you need, like in expensive places, like a like a London or something. You just get the smallest place you can get, and you all just cram in there, and you're not gonna spend time in there anyway. Right. And then the other thing, if I am using free nights and like London is just a good example, I will try to strategically get my points for a hotel in London. I, what I did last time was I did the Holiday Inn. And since I was staying at a Holiday Inn, I could get I got the room for free or super discount. I can't remember which, but one of the two. And they had free breakfast. So we could at least load up on free breakfast, which also costs money. Like every meal you can cut out is real coin and it, like breakfast, like some people love breakfast, but breakfast is like the, like the worst value of things when you're eating out, you know, cause like an egg costs you 20 cents. If you go to the grocery store, it costs you three bucks. If you order it for somebody to cook it for you, you know what I mean? So I, yeah. So if I am staying in a hotel and I'm getting it for free, I'm leveraging a place with free breakfast. Always. I don't even know if I've ever paid for a hotel without free breakfast. Cause it seems like a waste of money. Yeah, I mean, that's smart. Like, 
if there's four of you, that's dude, that's a yeah. lot of money, <laughs> right? Over you know, especially ten days and right. And I'm not. I'm trying not. You know, I'm not torturing my family. Like I'm not like saying you can't eat this, and I don't. You know, it's not nothing like that. But we do set expectations. We, we went around the world travel hacking, uh, um, and you know, we had a budget of a hundred bucks a day for food, and you know we were everybody was conscious of it and like it's like oh we spent a little much maybe tonight we'll just have sandwiches you know and it's a lot of it's just being conscious of it yeah which i feel like is a good practice uh, a good self-practice yeah. anyways you know i know that's something i need to i've been working more diligently on is yeah. being more responsible with finances and it's easy when you know the money's there to just why not spend 50 bucks on dinner right. tonight when it's, you just have to tell yourself, like, no, I'm only going to spend 25. And yeah, for me, it's like setting that mindset and understanding, you know, what is it you're trying to achieve and do? What is this trip about? You know, and like if you're it's a foodie trip, we take a trip every year, a wine trip with some friends. We're not really we don't know wine. We don't know anything about wine, but it's just fun. And like on that one, we don't even like we go to a fancy restaurant and we don't even check the price. But, you know, I don't care because that's why I'm there. I'm there to eat and live, you know. Um, and, and try it. But then other times it's, that's not my point of my trip. I'm trying to experience the culture. So let's put my energy there and not, and, and like not use money to, to like, that's a shortcut. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And I, my motto is travel, travel cheap, travel frequently. The less I spend, the more I feel good about spending the money on traveling. I love it. And I mean, it makes sense too, depending on what you are really trying to experience is really going to define your budget. If you're trying to experience tons of activities, then yeah, you're gonna have to come out of the pocket to pay to do all those things. Yep. If you just want to see beautiful places and hike and, and do it yourself, then you should have a relatively cheap trip. Yeah, you know, I would challenge people to just try to experience things without paying somebody for it. Like there's a lot of things you can experience, you know. I mean, we were in the big island of Hawaii last summer and we did um a snorkeling thing where you snorkel with manatees, or not manatees. Manta rays, manatees are in Florida. Um, manta rays, a big giant rays, and you know whatever we paid, I can't remember, hundred bucks each or so, I don't know. It was or maybe it was a couple hundred bucks for all of us, three hundred bucks. It was awesome and worth every penny. But we were there for three weeks, and that was the only paid thing we did. Everything else was let's go to the beach and let's go surfing, let's go boogie boarding, let's go snorkeling. And so it's like you know that's enough. It's enough to give you get you fulfilled. And for me as a parent. You know, I want to teach my kids that those experiences, it's not about money. It's not about resources. It's about, you know, being creative, uh, you know, making something happen, figuring it out. And like, what adventures can you have? And you usually end up in cooler places than if your answer is to go hire some Jeep tour guide to take you to a waterfall somewhere, you know? Mm. Probably makes sense, too, to research the activities a little bit beforehand if you are an activity type person, because surfing is an example. If you're going to be surfing, for yeah. 10 days in a row or whatever. And it might be cheaper just to buy a surfboard while you're there than to rent a surfboard. Yeah. For we did that. We or, did that in Costa Rica last year where it was just cheaper to, it was cheaper to pay for surf lessons and get the surfboard for free than it was just to rent the surfboard basically over the week. Like if you took the lesson, you got to say, keep the surfboard, use the surfboard all week. If you, and if you didn't get the lesson, then you had to like pay per day or whatever. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so the kids got surf lessons. So people in our community really have this wanderlust of wanting to travel the world and and do all this stuff. Realistically, what do you think a realistic number is for a single person to travel around the world by themselves? Mm -hmm. Dirt bag style, like, you know, because realistically, they just want to create content and experience new places and people. Sure. Well, Nomadic Matt nomadic matt uh he's a blogger now i think he's written a book or two now i think he has a book that's like 50 bucks a day i was able to do it with my family of four for 58 bucks per person per day and that was not slow travel and that was all in that's everything food shelter everything so i think that you're in a range in that range you know if you're if you're moving Right. Like you have to re- recognize that if you're traveling around the world, the expense is the transportation and di- and where you're staying at different parts of the world. You know, if you're in a Bangkok or something, even, you know, big city, but you can find street food, you're willing to pay a buck for, you know, some noodles. Like you can eat pretty cheap in Cambodia. I paid a buck for noodles and I paid like 25 bucks for a steak. 
because I had been there for a lot of weeks and I was like, I need a steak. <laughs> you know, I've been, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like all that, it really still is up to you. But I, I guess that a, a person, you know, total dirtbag style, you might even be able to get down to 40 bucks, 30, 40 bucks. You know, my 58 bucks took us to big cities, London and Madrid and Paris and and Istanbul and whatever, as well as, you know, cheap places in Southeast Asia. So it's just the pri- the difference in price. Like that's an example of why travel hacking is so valuable because if you can get a t- ticket for a hundred bucks to Thailand, most of Thailand, and you take the local transport, you don't take a taxi, you take a train, just like the local folks, you walk, you don't rent cars. You can, it, it can cost you almost nothing. I mean, we had days in, in Thailand and this other parts of Southeast Asia where a family of four, we had trouble spending 20 bucks, you know? So that's what, the, that's five bucks a person per day. And that's very doable if you're, you know, just eating local and living local. I've heard a lot of similar stories about the Southeast Asia area to where it's, you know, I have a buddy that said he couldn't spend $500 in a week and which I understand is a lot of money and, you know, and bot in Thailand, but for But for him, uh, I mean, he does well for himself and he's kind of a flashier guy. And so that was mind-boggling for me that he, I was like, if he can't spend $500 in a week in Thailand, I don't think anyone can because he could spend 500 bucks at dinner here at happy hour. You okay. know, he's, that, he's just that guy. Yeah, right. And that's the thing is, is and there's all different styles of travel, and I don't judge anybody on their thing, but all I know is if you know what you want, you can do stuff for pretty dang cheap. Alcohol is an example of something. Like the range, like if you go to Thailand, you can get, probably get a drink, you know, or in a regular bar, a drink for 12 bucks or a drink for 50 cents, you know? So just knowing what you're drinking and what, if you want that flashy, whatever experience, or if you're okay with a local beer, always drink the local beer, by the way, it's always dirt cheap. I mean, you know, and I'm always amazed when you're in the U S and it's like, we want to charge you, you know, five bucks for a Budweiser and the rest of the world you should be able to get a beer for a buck or two. I mean, even, even in Spain, it was that way. Cheap. Local beer. beer, go local. Well, they drink beer and wine for every meal, so it's cheap. What about uh? So, so it sounds like if if you're a traveling photographer or you want to be a traveling photographer, between selling prints, photo shoots on the road, blogging, podcasting, whatever you're doing, if you can come up with two to twenty five hundred bucks a month, oh, oh realistic, yeah, you could be on your way. Like you really could. Yeah, There's no excuse. That, like, if that's what you want to do and you have that, like, that's comfortable. You should be able to comfortably go do your thing. For most of the world, I'm sure that's the case. And, like, my strategy, if I was thinking that way, what I would do is I would save some money and have my nut, you know, whatever that number, whatever your number is that you, you know, sort of that gives you a feeling of safety enough to jump off. And then I determine, like, how low I'm willing to let that go so I have some sort of re-entry money when I come back. You know what I mean? So, like, let's, I'm just going to throw out some numbers and I'm not, these are just fake numbers, but let's say like, I think if I save 10 grand, it's going to give me a lot of buffer. And I know when I come back to home to the States or wherever you live, it should be nice to have three of that thousand bucks just to, you know, whatever I have to do, find a job, get my, you know, down payment on my apartment or whatever. Right. So then I have this 10 grand that I'm starting with and I have a plan to earn some money and maybe I preferably I'm earning money. And then I can go, I can go head out, start somewhere cheap like Southeast Asia and you're probably not going to eat into it. If you're making a couple grand, you might be growing your savings, which is what you hear from a lot of travelers, you know? And then, oh, now you get some confidence. You can go to some more expensive places. And if that savings starts to dip down, you know, gets below that 10 grand or whatever, then you say, oh, I need to either go back to Southeast Asia or I need to go back to the States. And you still have that buffer all the way down to three grand when you say, okay, it's time to pull a parachute and go home or just get a job and work on the road. I mean, People work, you know, harvesting stuff. They work in tourism. They dive instructors. They take, obviously, photos. They help people build websites. I mean, I've run into people on the road that are just, like, getting free room and board while they build people websites, you know, little WordPress sites. So I imagine photographers, why couldn't you do that? Be resourceful. Hustle. Be friendly. Yeah. And it sounds like having, the more planning you do beforehand, the more likely it'll probably happen. And the the better you'll feel. Like if I mix some of my finance experience with what you just said, like if you could save six months of expenses there you go. and you have steady income going, then 
that's pretty there comfortable. You if that's you're, a great buffer. Yeah, you have you come back home. It's not like you're broke. You right. still have money in the bank, so you can still get into a place or whatever you need to do and just transition back into life. Right. And so the balance is what you said about more likely it could happen. Like I think that's the thing. Like how do you plan? And I'm a planner. I'm a natural planner. Um, it's because everybody always thinks I'm a spontaneous. I'm really not. I'm a hyper planner. I'm always planning. Um, so that's sort of my advice has that bias. Right. But I can imagine that planning being a crutch could be a life avoidance tool. So in other words, you'll never be ready. So I think finding that balance between giving yourself enough security, but geez, way more important that you just do it. Like at some point you got to do it. Don't be one of these People who just plans a trip, you know, the big trip that's coming. I actually knew a guy. He was uh, he was doing a van. Um, he had a van, and he was going to move into this van and travel. And, like, he told me that for, like, four years. I think he's still here. It was, I don't know. I haven't run into him in a while. We switched. We used to work same coffee shop scene, and now we're, we're kind of on different paths. But don't be that guy. Don't be the guy that talks about the trip that he's going to take someday like figure out how to make it real all right so take action just do it get out of your comfort zone and 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 go for it so what are some uh what are some of the top lessons you've learned while traveling uh number one would be open would be be open um like the best experiences come from like little uh unexpected places a great example is that I love my library story. I, I, lo- I lost my keys to the Airbnb the first day on the beach that I was there. And the place was all locked up and I couldn't find the owner. So I was like, what do I do? I went down to the air or to the police station in the local town. And the, complete, the cop comes out from behind the glass. It's actually like bars. And he yells to some guy's lineman on the corner, like hanging out on the corner. Uh, and uh, he says, hey, you know, Mr. Eve. And the guy yells, Oh, Mr. Eve, he yelled some something about down the street or whatever. And basically what happened was the next person down the street waved me down the street and they walked me all the way down the street going, you know, with their arms and calling my name. Well, what they asked my name eventually and calling my name. And they led me to what my where my landlord, what landlord was, which was sitting in a bar with his Apple laptop, drinking a beer and working. You know, it's like nine o'clock at night or whatever. And he's like, oh, you lost your key. No problem. You know, and he pulls out the uh, his own key, gives me the key and whatever. But I had this whole experience just by the by like not like panicky. And, you know, I could have just got on that that Airbnb app and messaged him. Right. But just by being open to like, let's like explore this town. Let's talk to these people, not being afraid of them. You know what I mean? So that like just being open to what magic can happen unexpectedly is one. I think. <laughs> sort of related to that is you just have to, if you don't learn how to roll with the punches, it's really stressful. And like the chances of you really having a bad experience are way more increased when you expect to have a bad experience. You know what I mean? So I would really say that, you know, you need, it's so much of this is just mindset. Um, and then the other thing is like budget it, like just build it into your life. I mean, you have a, you know, a car loan or you're buying or paying rent or whatever, like, Get a travel fund. Like everybody just needs a travel fund, period. Because even if it's just a few hundred bucks, it gets you somewhere. So like you need to like integrate it in part of your like our it's it's basically like our version of tithing. Like, you know, we're putting a certain percentage of our income or resources to travel. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We won't our car's not working. You need a new car, tough. I'm we're traveling. Like, you know, you know what I mean? And that's the attitude that we take. So those are my Okay. Um, Okay. Some thoughts, some thoughts. Yeah. So another good question I have is uh, obviously you own, I shouldn't say obvious because it's not obvious for the audience, (laughs) Uh, but you own multiple businesses. And so how do you balance owning multiple businesses while you're traveling with your family on the road? Because uh, I think this is, would be a good topic for a lot of people in the audience because most of these people will be working slash traveling in one. Yeah, so I I mean, for me, a lot of that's changed in recent years because now I'm able, I have a team um, that helps me. And on my last trip um, to Spain, I didn't work. I mean, my wife worked a little bit because uh, we worked together, but my team was, was just awesome. And they basically handled everything. And I didn't do as much as check my email 
Um, but that's rare and, or that's sort of a new thing that's happened. Right. Um, so I guess one thought would be when possible, build a team and you know, that's, but that's not always possible. So then typically what I've done is I, I mean, it always starts with the beginning, which is kind of obvious, but like, what kind of businesses are you choosing to be in? You know, like if you're trying to own a restaurant, you know, that restaurant has to be pretty far along and humming before you can really leave it, you know, realistically. So like, hence I'm not in the restaurant business. I'm not in any physical products businesses for the same reason, because I cannot deal with shipping problems very easily from a remote village in Thailand. You know what I mean? So I choose software and service businesses. So on my software businesses, I basically build the product to be as self-serve uh, as possible. So I have a company called NetCamps, which does online sports camp registration. So like Cam Newton and his people are running a camp. They use our software to sign kids up and communicate with them, take their money, that sort of thing, get the waivers signed, all that. So that's one company. Well, that company, I don't need to work on it day to day for it to be okay. You know, I, we need, there's certain times a year that I need somebody to answer calls or deal with something. And that was, my wife does a lot of that work. So that those are the issues that she was dealing with in Spain, but mostly I can just work on that business and focus on growing it when I do work on it. So that gives me maximum flexibility on the service side and my consulting work. I do a lot of preparation with all my folks that I work with, you know, when they sign up to work with me, I make it clear. I love to travel. I mean, they're doing work with them is really important to me too, but this traveling is going to happen and nothing's going to drop off. So I make that very clear. Okay. So I'm like, it always starts with those basics and then I build team as I needed it. Now, in terms of actually on the road, like, listen, I can't rent a place without internet. It's just not going to happen. And there's downsides to that for sure. But I, I just haven't, I, I always hunt down internet. I always plan that I'm going to work in the mornings a little bit. Uh, you, you know, that's my general expectation. And then for us, you know, we, that's why I like to travel longer because you don't feel so hurried. Like you got to get everything in. So then I can come home in the evenings, you know, when I'm traveling and work for an hour or two. And, uh, instead of like whatever, turning on TV or whatever, it's like much more like that's my relaxation. So you go do stuff during the day and it becomes more of a normal everyday life than sort of trying to get a vacation in. If that makes sense where I feel like I have to chalk in all this stuff in four days. I mean, now because my kids, their school schedule, and like I said, my kid's job work schedule, my trips are shrinking down to like 10 days long. And that's really, for me, that's really short. But, you know, that that's the reason we, one reason we go longer is that we don't feel so pressured to squeeze everything in and we can take the time to work. Also tools, like what are the tools you're using? We use Trello to manage projects. You know, we use Slack to communicate asynchronously. No, you know, no real secrets here, you know. And we build the company when we're home as if it's a distributed company and we're not home. Like it would, it functions the same at home as it does when we're gone. The only difference being uh, that when we, we can meet in person when we're home. Mm. And then the other side is when I'm home, I'm on conference calls with startups in Europe and like, that's no big deal too. <laughs> you know, right. so it goes both ways. It's a global, the world is global. Right. The sooner we, we all recognize that, the better. I agree. Appreciate you coming on the show. Last Last question is for me is always just what parting words would you leave for the community, for the audience about, you know, chasing their dreams and getting out to see the world and immersing themselves in new cultures and all that good stuff. So I'll just let you think about that for a second. Fire them up. Well, yeah. So it's like two thoughts that are fresh on my mind. And the first one is sort of the obvious one, which is just do it like you just got to do it right and that's obvious but i think the part that we don't talk about we need to talk about more is that you know your ability to to just do it is directly related to your options and your options are directly related to the hard work that you've put in beforehand and like learning whatever your craft learning your skills like don't think you're just going to phone in this life and then get to live this awesome, flexible life, you know what I mean? Where you're seeing the world, like it's just not going to happen. I mean, maybe you could join the merchant Marines or something. There's other ways to see the world. Right. But what I'm saying is if you want a flexible life where you can work when you want, where you want, you can be all over the world. That usually means you have had to master something. And that means like dedicating yourself to what I've referred to just today. And that's why this is fresh with somebody to like the, it's like when you choose this life, you choose the way of the samurai. 
you choose a life of discipline and honor and honesty and commitment and all these things to your craft, to your life, to the people you love, all these things in order to give yourself options so you can live that ultimate life. You know what I'm saying? And I just think we need to talk more about like none of this is accidental. You know, I know that if you, I know that just believing that I can summit Mount Everest isn't enough to get me to mount top of Mount Everest. But I also know that if I don't believe and I don't do take the steps to summit Mount Everest, I will never get there. Right. So I think sometimes those things are confused. So I guess without turning into a much bigger rant, all I would say is like the, it is up to all of us individually and we all have the gifts and talents and no matter how life has dealt you, you know, shitty blows or challenges or money, like it's all fixable. Like I was a kid that, you know, we went and got our cheese from the government, from a government center. You know what I mean? Like at the county, they gave you a box of food. I was a kid, you know, I worked as a, I dug ditches. I was a bowling alley mechanic. I was, you know, and I'm not saying like I'm all that now. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm pretty happy with how my life turned out. And, the, and it was mostly like a lot of hard work to get there and a hell of a lot of luck, of course. But if same thing, if you have the luck, but and, and no work, it usually isn't enough. Like luck usually isn't enough. So bottom line is make it happen, but you make it happen by becoming awesome, by elevating your own game. You know, don't point at other people, point at yourself and figure it out. Thank you for listening. Please share the Art of Visuals podcast with your friends and make sure to hit that subscribe button. Sharing is caring. You can follow Art of Visuals on Instagram at Art of Visuals or sign up for the Art of Visuals newsletter on artofvisuals.com. Join us next episode for more, but until then, let's continue to visually inspire the world together.